Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Vel News Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Delaney, and what a crazy year it has been. Here to take a long look back at the highlights and lowlights of this season are our European trio, the contingent of Jim Cotton, Saib O'Shea, and Andrew Hood. How are the three of you doing? Good. Very good. Thank you. Now, we're going to do a countdown of sorts from 1 to 21, taking you through what we think are the biggest stories of the year. You may agree, you may disagree, but uh, either way, I hope you enjoy our takes here. And we're going to kick it off with Jim Cotton with story number one. Yeah, so we're we're getting started the big list of 21 with uh, arguably one of the male riders of... uh, of the season, he's appeared in the news the most, which is Wout Van Aert and his uh, his Tour de France stage triple. Uh, won a, a time trial stage, the Mont Ventoux stage, and the final sprint of this year's Tour, which he was actually the first rider to uh, to win all win a stage of all three different types, I believe, since Merckx and Nino in the seventies, and it just. Um, really confirms him as this Swiss knife of the pro peloton. You know, he can do it all and he can he can beat the best at their own disciplines all while doing the other things. And uh, while Wout was uh, winning three stages, uh, Lachlan Morton was doing his own little tour, which uh, I think Ben's going to talk about. Don't steal my thunder there, Jim. Come on now. Yes, story number two, and another Tour de France story, the alt Tour, Lachlan Morton said, I see your Tour de France ride there, mates, and I raise you one. I'm going to ride not only every single kilometer of the stages, but all the kilometers in between doing the transfers and doing it all unsupported. So bikepacking is is a hot thing, and that's what he did. And he did it faster than the the Peloton, which was bonkers. When it started out, it seemed like it was an aggressive bet that he could finish there at the same time, but uh, ended up doing something like 3,400 miles to the to the Peloton's 2,100 miles uh, and finished days ahead. You know, sleeping out by the side of the road at one point was wearing uh, sandals instead of road cleats as his knees were giving him grief. And it was quite the story. And uh, judging by our internet traffic, it was a fun story to follow along. Kind of old school Tour de France. Uh, none of these fancy tour buses and, and swan yours rubbing them down. It's just sleeping by the side of the road. So Lachlan's alt tour number two. Number three, Sive. Yeah, we're staying in France for number three. And it's the uh, first ever Paris-Roubaix fan. Um, this is a race that's been kind of teased and we've been tantalized with it for many many years um i think the first time i ever heard rumors of it was kind of back in 2018 2019 but it was kind of consistently missed off the calendar and you know the the organizers seemed like they weren't gonna budge on it then finally when the calendar got rejigged last year because of covid it got put in there we were kind of teased with it for the first time that it was taken away from us um, then it was put back in for April this year and it was taken away from us again. So as the saying goes, third time lucky. Uh, the first ever Paris-Bay fam was finally held um, in October. And it was one of these races just, like I said, didn't seem like it was ever going to happen for the women. Um, and so it finally having happened and it kind of being this sort of epic mud fest with a massive long 
solo break from Lizzie Dignan um, and that brilliant chase from Mariana Voss at the towards the end of the race. Um, you know, I think it was the the perfect start to what will hopefully be a long standing race. And I feel like outside of perhaps the announcement that we're going to have um, a Tour de France fam next year, this, this is probably the one of the biggest women's stories um, of the year in terms of just the development of of women's racing and the kind of pushing forward by race organizers and riders um, of the of the sport um, sticking in northeast France. I think Hoodie's got number four. Indeed, I do. We had in 2021 a generational first wet edition of Perry Robay. The last really wet editions were back in 2001 and 2002. And every year, journalists, fans, maybe even a few riders were praying for rain at Roubaix. But who knows? Is it global warming? Is it just luck? But Harry Roubaix in April just seems to be getting drier and faster every year. Uh, I mean, the last several years, it's been almost spring-like, summer-like weather at Perrier Bay. You're, you know, the journalists are always waiting in the infield of the outdoor velodrome. We're oftentimes in uh, T-shirts just because the weather's been so uh, really just out of season. But this year, the, the race was moved back to October, as I've just said, for the COVID situation. And lo and behold, the weather gods came and delivered. And, you know, really set the tone really quite a spectacular way, both for the men's and women's race. And, uh, you know, we saw, uh, you know, really a decisive moment in the women's races when Lizzie Dagnan almost crashed and kind of handled a corner there late in the race in the muddy conditions. And then the men came through and uh, really set the stage for a spectacular uh, edition of the Robay in the wet. And that sets us up for the next one, tossing it back to Jim. Yeah, so uh, Machi van der Poel finished third in Roubaix, and that race sort of closed a, a little chapter in his uh, illustrious career on the bike, uh, which started with his kind of the image of the season, him going kind of hips over, over handlebars on the mountain bike race of the Olympics, where he managed to spectacularly miscue this huge kind of eight eight feet drop off off a huge rock and um, landed flat on his back and it sort of put him out of action for the best part of uh, about six weeks. But coming into the race, everybody was looking at Van der Poel to, you know, to crush this Olympic race the mount- on the mountain bike. He'd been kind of targeting it for years and everybody thought it was going to be him and there was only really... the Tom Pidcock or the the mountain bike sort of stalwarts who could get in his way. And Vanderpool crashed on this first lap, um, struggled on for about another lap, and then he just had to had to give up and Pidcock sort of marched clear and took a took the gold and sort of set him up for a lot more to come potentially. And it also sort of set the tone on this rivalry, this uh three discipline rivalry between Van der Poel, who's like the the established kind of supremo across all disciplines, and Pidcock, who's the young kind of rising talent, and uh, they'll be they'll be racing each other all year long for, for probably the best part of a decade. So yeah, that Olympic race really really sort of set the scene for what's going to come. And uh, 
that's number five. So now it's back to hoodie for number six. Yeah, before jumping into the next item, I you know, I still looking back at that mountain bike race. I just can't believe what a colossal error that Vanderpool made during that race. Um, it, everyone knew that there was this kind of practice ramp going off that ledge that was there in the practice laps, but everyone knew that it was going to be removed from the race on race day uh, after the morning practice laps. But somehow the wires got cross-circuited in Vanderpool's brain, and he thought that ramp was going to be there. And, you know, you talked to a lot of different people saying that that message was clearly communicated within the Dutch team. But for some reason, he just had a blank spot there. And I don't know what you guys think, but just to me, it just seems like one of the most colossal errors I've seen in cycling in a long time. Anyway, jumping into the next category, which is uh, sw- switching gears here a little bit to a different topic, ketones. Uh, this has uh, been making headlines over the last couple of seasons. You know, what are they? They're like these... Uh, the nutritional uh, supplement kind of uh, replicates kind of the, the ketones that naturally occur in your body. It all gets into this whole this whole ketone diet. It's all about driven by today's power to weight ratio and obsession with weight and nutrition. Uh, Jim's been doing good reporting about that, and we've all been talking about this issue. And it's ketones are a product that you you know you drink them or they're like at a gel. Um, right now they're not banned. Big debate point within the sport you know is that considered a performance enhancing product or is it just like taking an energy bell just at a little more sophisticated level uh and its chemistry uh, i've been talking to different riders a lot of mixed opinions out there about whether this should be banned or not uci just rolled out a study last week and they're saying that there was no perceived measurable performance benefit by digesting ketones um I don't know what you guys think, but it's one of those kind of gray areas in cycling. It kind of haunts the sport. You know, uh, a lot of a lot of big questions out there still about how everyone's going so fast and so hard. And a lot of people think ketones is a part of that equation. Saif? Yeah, it's interesting ketones. Like you say, it's perhaps one of these gray areas within pro racing, the team sort of look to exploit. But perhaps, you know, if... if uh, the UCI and WADA think that there's no measurable um, performance-enhancing um, benefit to it, then perhaps it's one of these other things that we often get in cycling, which is cyclists doing all these ridiculous things, thinking that they're going to uh, help them, like not eating meat before a big mountain stage or not eating ice cream or you know, not using the air con, these sorts of little um, yeah, weird quirks that cyclists often get into um i think ketones is probably a an area that needs much more investigation and actual um thought put into it yeah we don't really know exactly how well it works but lots of teams seem to think it works one thing that i appreciate at least that there's open discussion on this now there's gray areas have long lurked in cycling as people are looking for for an edge uh, take sleeping pills, for instance, like sleeping pills aren't technically illegal, right? They're not technically performance enhancing, but like anything, they can be used poorly. And, you know, maybe a generation ago, some writers may have felt or have been told specifically like, okay, here's how you're going to lose weight. You're going to go to, I remember reading, you know, Tyler Hamilton talking about instruction he received from Bjorn Reese, go do a big training ride, come back, eat a tiny little snack, take a sleeping bill. So you'll sleep till dinner. So you don't eat 
And that's how you'll lose weight. That's not a healthy thing, like not a technically illegal thing, but not a healthy thing, at least psychologically. So, and that was something that, that he certainly, he, Tyler, wasn't talking about at the time. It was, you know, years later before this came out. So I think one positive uh, improvement is that more writers are more willing to speak openly about what's going on. And these things can be debated you know, more in real time uh, instead of 10 years later when the people are, you know, coming out of therapy. Like, <laughs> here's how my my brain was ruined by this sport. So I don't know what the heck the answer is, but I think it, it's a positive that it's at least being discussed and, and debated. One thing that shouldn't be debated, Sive, equal pay for equal kick-ass bike racing. Yeah. Number seven. Number seven. And uh, the announcement by the UCI earlier at the World Championships that it was promising to raise the minimum wage for World Tour riders as quickly as possible. So however quick that is, uh, I mean, this is the UCI, so it could be anything between three or 30 years time you know we'll have to we'll have to see with with that regard but it's another kind of um statement by the uci that it is looking to push uh women's salaries further um i remember way back when i think it might have been 2015 2016 speaking with the previous uci president brian cookson on the side of the road in paris asking him about minimum salaries um, and he kept kind of pushing back on that and saying that, you know, he was he was not really sure when it was going to come in, that he wanted it to come in. But, you know, the, there was this kind of idea that once minimum salaries were introduced for, for women's teams, you know, the, the sky might fall in. Um, we've now seen that <laughs> it hasn't fallen in. We're all all right. We're still alive. The world's still turning. Um, and we've kind of been on this um, track with the, the women's minimum salary this is obviously just for world tour teams um where by 2023 we'll see the top level riders their salaries will be equal to second tier men's riders so once we've kind of passed that year then hopefully in the few years after that we'll see women's uh, top tier salaries equaling men's top tier salaries we've seen a couple of teams already doing that with bike exchange and trek bringing their uh, women's riders' salaries up to the, the level of the, the men's teams. The issue with this now is the UCI need to also look at the second tier of women's racing because as they keep pushing up the level of top-tier women's racing, they can't be leaving behind second tier. We still see a lot of riders in um, the continent, women's continental teams still kind of riding for next to no money um, and that needs to change so with improving the top level we still can't really forget the the second level and perhaps a third level whenever that comes in so we move on to to Jim for number seven and we go to Pogachar. yeah so Tade Pogachar is certainly one rider who's very happy with the amount he's earning at the moment I would have thought uh so the the young Slovenian kind of absolutely smashed his second Tour de France this season, won it by around five minutes uh, off the top of my head. And as if that wasn't as big a feat enough, uh, you know, defending the yellow jersey at that age. He also won um, Liège, Bastogne Liège and Il Lombardia all in the same season, which actually adds him to a very sort of 
revered club uh, of Copy and Mercs to have won two monuments and the Tour uh, in one season. And it really, under the, the Tour de France victory underlined his sort of dominance in the GC world, but by showing the versatility to win these two huge hilly monuments as well, it really reinforced just how how strong he is as a rider and how how well-rounded he is, unlike so many other riders in, in the world at the moment. And not long after he, he won the Tour, he actually was handed a, a six-year contract or his contract was extended for that duration of time with UAE Emirates, which must be one of the biggest deals in pro cycling that's that's ever come about. And uh, yeah, just this guy's here to stay and he's earning big and he's winning big and it's probably going to be that way for a little while. So uh, now it's back to Ben. Number nine on our list of 2021 big stories. Ashton Lambie setting a world record in the individual pursuit. Uh one thing that attracted me about this story was just the underdog nature of it. Not that an elite level athlete is an underdog by any stretch, but compared to say uh, the you know Italian super squad of Filippo Ghana when he was you know racing for the Italian national squad at Olympics, or when he has the support of Ineos Grenadiers, you compare that to Ashton Lambie training in a barn in Montana. By himself, uh, sort of like a Graham Obrey type vibe to it of, you know, one very, very determined man against the world record. Uh, he went down to Aguas Calientes uh, in Mexico to a velodrome there, which is at altitude where he had previously set a world record. He and Ghana had gone back and forth on uh, lowering the world record over four kilometers and uh, went down there with his partner, Dr. Christina Birch, and now a new NASA astronaut in training, another story of a very determined individual, uh, went down there and failed and came up short on the record attempt um, and then went back you know, less than 24 hours later and pulled out an, enough of an effort to go under four minutes. So there's something mathematically pleasing about that. Four kilometers, first person on Earth to go under four minutes. Quite a story of 2021, Ashton Lambie. Number 10, another individual, very determined in a, in a different way of source, Andrew. Yeah, just piggybacking on what you said, Ben, about Lambie. What a, what a, what a different story it would be if uh, the, the individual pursuit was still in the Olympics. It was an Olympic sport for so many years, and they took it out, I think, going into 2012. And, uh, you know, that really just changed the trajectory of, of uh, track racing and really just kind of Lambie's you know, profile, public profile. I mean, imagine where he'd be right now, you know, had he done that at the Olympics and won the Olympic medal. But anyway, switching gears to our, one of my favorite stories of the year, just because it was so absolutely wacky. Uh, Miguel Angel Lopez goes loco at the Welt España and uh, abandons the race with about, I think it was about 100 Ks to go, not even. I mean, the uh, penultimate road stage, I think he had one more climb to go than the last day was a time trial. And uh, Lopez just blew a gasket, and he just got muy enojado about the situation there that was happening in front of him. Uh, he had started that stage, you know, he had a big high-profile transfer from Astana to Movistar, came into the Welta, 
there was a lot of tension behind the scenes. We kind of pried that out of it later, kind of what was really going on there. Uh, you know, he was told that he was going to be the leader at the Welta, and they convinced him not to race the Olympics. Movistar said, you go to the Welta, you'll be the team leader. And of course, Enrique Moss, who had a great tour, was brought in as co-leader, already set up some tension going into that final stage. Ben? Well, it's not like you know, people dropping out of stage races happens you know, through crashing or fatigue or something. It's not unusual for someone to drop out of a stage race, even on the, the final day. What was highly unusual was that Homeboy was in the hunt for the GC. It's not like he was three hours down. He was in fourth. So what it was like Moss was third. He was in fourth. So he was in the, the GC hunt, got frustrated by the team dynamics and then very publicly pulled the plug of like, F you guys, I am out, which is something I had never seen before. Yeah, I don't, I don't think anybody had ever seen it before. And that's what it made it just so crazy uh, to, to see him just implode in front of the world, really, because uh, his, he started that day third. Uh, the break pulled clear. Moss was up the road. Uh, Lopez was kind of trying to bridge across by himself. Movistar was radioing him to stop and slow down to allow some teammates to come up. But Lopez interpreted that as like the team was telling me to stop in order to assure the Spanish gets the podium and not the Colombian. So there's a lot of interesting politics there, even internally within uh, Colombia and Spain and Movistar and Lopez. And it turns out he quit the Welta and he soon quit the team. Jim. There's this story is so much the richer as well because of Movistar's kind of recent like history of having these leadership spats like when there was Quintana and Lando on the team and um, Valverde as well and it seems like kind of at all on all the big occasions somehow Movistar it just goes wrong for them it, 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 like beyond their control or in this case uh, kind of a completely rogue rider and it's like this curse that just hangs over their head and I think I think after the Lopez incident, everyone's just looking forward to the next series of the Netflix, uh, the Netflix series uh, with Baker. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't think there's actually going to be another um, year of the Netflix series. I haven't seen it being so. That would be incredibly disappointing if we don't get to see behind the scenes um, on that one. I mean, like you guys said, I've never seen anybody just throw their toys out of the pram quite so drastically. <laughs> In a, in a grand tour and the fallout that kind of came out in the, the weeks um, following it. But also um, there's been more recently because Lopez has done some some interviews from the Astana training camp. He did a, a press conference last week, I think it was. And, um, yeah, so somebody asked him about it. Did he regret going to Movistar in the first place? Um, and he kind of gave a bit of a, a wry grin and sort of, eventually gave a diplomatic answer, called it a learning experience he's kind of gained from it. Um, and he did eventually say that he sort of regretted the way that he quit the welter and the way that he kind of behaved in that situation. But then in a, a subsequent interview, um, I think perhaps with Colombian media, he had a right go at um, Enrique Mass and called him a very selfish rider um, and spoke about how when... Lopez was moving up the field, then Mass would sort of try and like just be that little bit in front of him, you know, like two two siblings just trying to be that little bit 
better than the other one. You know, well, if you're going to go at the front, then, well, I'm going to be like two toes in front of you. Um, and the kind of, uh, we've seen a little bit of mass in that um, Netflix documentary and he does have a tendency to be quite a difficult character when things aren't kind of exactly how he wants it. Um, and I think that's, it was that relationship as well as the kind of mixed messages from the management that really pushed Lopez um, over the edge. So hopefully next year we'll see him um, back to his kind of best on the bike without kind of the inter-team drama going on. But maybe maybe him himself and Vincenzo will give us some drama next year. Let's see. Yeah, I don't know if I necessarily want to be part of that team, but I certainly enjoy watching the drama both on and off the bikes. So we're looking forward to more of that next year. Speaking of drama, number 11, the UCI goes gravel. Also, speaking of people throwing their toys out of the pram, some gravel folks are upset that the, the, the big UCI international government is getting involved in the Wild West of gravel. Andy, you broke the story uh, around the time of the Road World Championships that the UCI is announcing. Hey, guess what? Next year, we, the UCI, are going to have a gravel world championship and a gravel world series set of races as qualifiers for this. Um, that's, I think there's a lot of things that are interesting about that. Uh, one is how it's such a paradigm shift from professionals and amateurs. It, you know, not too long ago, the, the pros were uh, leading the habits of amateurs for recreation, you know, whether it was in how people rode or how they dressed themselves like here in the States in the, the Lance era, seeing people ride around in postal kits was a pretty common thing as they were emulating the pros. And now it's not that everything has switched, but with gravel, it's, it's a different dynamic and that recreational riders have been having fun doing gravel events to the point where it's gained critical mass. And now uh, pro riders and this, the sponsors behind them are saying like, Hey, there's, there's, there's something there. We want to get involved in that. Can we come do what you're doing? And, uh, drama has ensued with like, Oh, the UCI is here to ruin gravel. I'm interested to see of, of the people who have been speaking negatively about this, how, uh, at, you know, elite level gravel riders, how many will actually show up and do these races? Because for all the smack talk, I think many gravel racers would still like the idea of having a gravel world title. So that said, while UCI has announced this gravel world series and a gravel world championship, there haven't been any specifics revealed like, mm, when are these races? Where are these races? And while the rest of the calendar has been announced and put out there and you know, race spots are selling out like hotcakes, we don't have any details unless Andy, you're, you're holding something secret yourself. What do you know? Well, just from what you're saying about how it really was a grassroots movement and the UCI is kind of put, putting its tentacles into it. It really reminds us of what happened with mountain bike or snowboarding, you know, back in the day with ski racing and fists, fists moved in and took control of it. What is what is FIS for those uh, of us who were snow ignorant? International Fee Ski Federation, like when they had uh, say, became an Olympic sport. They went mountain biking. Um, I think the big difference here is that... Uh, Gravel will never become a cycling discipline at the Olympics. So I think that the UCI won't reach in too much into, you know, we won't get into the big fears and have all these, these uh, mundane rules, you know, tire, what, tire width and pressure, whatever. All these kinds of things will not be introduced into the gravel scene. I think largely because it probably will never become an Olympic sport. So I think the UCI is looking at this as like, 
a growing part of cycling. We want to be a part of it, but we're not looking to dominate it. So I think that's an important element. I think people should understand about that. Yeah, personally, I'm looking forward to going and covering both types of races, UCI races and then the good old fashioned grassroots races. So I think this is an issue where or a situation where both both can coexist. We can all get along here, Gravelures and UCI folks. Can we all get along, though, in the Belgian squad side with story number 12 of 2021? That's a very big question. Um, yeah, sticking with the idea of the World Championships, um, we've got the the men's road race specifically at this year's Road World Championships. I don't know about you guys, but I think as a whole, from just everything from the racing, from the fans, from the, the atmosphere, um, it was just one of the most memorable days of racing I think we've had in 2021. Um, you know, we we were there, we saw the the spectators and it was insane. Um, and, you know, that atmosphere and that support um, really drove the the Belgian men's team going into that final Sunday. But the problem for me with this team was there were too many cooks. There were too many big names with big desires. And even though we saw the everybody said they were going to be backing Wout Van Aert for this race, you know, he was really the the home hero um, in this regard. The the reality was quite different. Um, and we saw this kind of incredibly aggressive race. The uh, Remco Venepol really livened up, but ultimately burned his matches far too early and almost um, screwed over the rest of the the Belgian team. It meant that Van Aert didn't have the legs. Um, Jasper Stuyven didn't have the legs right there at the end, having just done this insane race that we, we loved watching. They didn't have it at the end um, after this kind of aggressive racing and Julian Alaphilippe romped off to take his second straight world um, title and the uh, discussions about what happened on that day are still going on in Belgium really and it's going to be a talking point I think amongst the the Belgian media the Belgian riders Belgian fans for a very very long time Um, and we saw a lot of kind of uh, mudslinging in the press between some of the top riders where Avenapol said that you know, the management hadn't been clear with him. You know, they were they were a bit wishy-washy with like their orders. But then, you know, the, he had said several days beforehand that he'd been told he was working for Van Aert and that's what he was going to do. Um, so there's kind of two stories there coming from Evenepoel. And then, um, yeah, while Van Aert kind of got stuck into Evenepoel a little bit and um, said that he shouldn't really be taking his gripes to the press and actually he probably should have turned up to the post-race debrief you know if you really wanted to actually discuss the finer details um but yeah i think this is going to be a a story that lives long in the belgian memory lucky number 13 peter sagan always an interesting name always a character made a move in 2021 yeah peter peter sagan's always got a story kind of following close behind him and uh and this time it was that you know big bucks big profile, big sponsor Sagan is moving to little, well, relatively little French team Total, uh, Team Total Energies next year for, for two years. And uh, 
this French team, very traditional French team, very long running. And it's not actually in the world tour at the moment. It's second division. And the, the idea of this kind of flamboyant, like, uh, hugely celebrated uh, Slovakian going, going to this very kind of traditional family style French team, just, just really sort of came out of the blue. I mean, everybody knew he was going to be going somewhere this season. A lot there was rumours of uh, De Coining Quickstep was a big one where he would, you know, make a real good fit in their classic squad. And then turns out that uh, Total Energy's got him and sets up this really interesting uh, sort of storyline for next year because Sagan, he's taken with him a whole load of his kind of his his own personal crew. Uh, he's taken some riders, he's taken his like his press man, his mechanics, masseuse, as well as two big sponsors, um, uh, specialised bikes and sportful kind of clothing. And it's going to totally change this team. But I think the more interesting question is whether it's going to change Sagan. Because um, as everyone knows, kind of the winds have dried up somewhat since he won his three world titles in, like, in Paris-Roubaix and... Everybody, I think there's a sense everybody wants to see Sagan back at his best because when he's when he's good, he's you know he's wow Van Van der Poel level kind of excitement, and uh, it's whether it's whether this change of scene can do it for him. Would it have been better for Sagan if he broke all his ties with his former team Bora and didn't take his old teammates and all these sponsors with him and started with a clean slate, or or does he need that sort of comfort blanket so to speak of you know this uh familiar environment and yeah i think uh next year sagan's story is going to be it's going to be one of the most interesting ones uh to to follow and so that's now back to hoodie to talk sep everyone loves sep that'd be a great name for a tv show uh <laughs> and he's uh and he did some lovable achievements in 2021 sep of course uh the adorable cure climber from durango colorado everyone here very knows long relationship with sep he continues to climb and surprise and hit new milestones and in 2021 we saw sep win his first tour de france stage did it in kind of home roads where he lives in andorra on the big mountain stage there beat alejandro valverde who was still knocking on the door at the ripe age of 41. And then he went on to the Vuelta España and quietly rode into the top 10, his first top 10 in GC. He kind of rode the coattails of team captain Primoz Roglic, who won the overall. He finished eighth. Uh, what was interesting about those two stats um, for USA Cycling is that he was the first uh, American Tour de France stage winner since 2011, and that was Tyler Farah, who won a stage, a sprint stage. And, um, you know, kind of sets Sep up going into the future. I mean, the big question with Sep is, you know, really, is he going to be able to take that next level step to be a GC captain in a grand tour? Or will he just kind of remain this kind of elite domestique and win a few stages and, and be happy with that? So that's the big talking point uh, the next year or two for Sep. Up next is Sive. Yes, we're uh, moving on to somebody who's kind of really getting to the prime of their career to somebody who's retiring. Uh, number 15 is Anna van der Brecken, calling it time in her career. And she's the biggest name retiring at the end of this year. But 
it's probably it's really a, an end of an era. There's quite a few big name riders in the women's peloton calling time on their career this year. Uh, big track star, road star Kirsten Wild is retiring this year. The um, kind of doyen of the women's current women's peloton, Trixie Warwick, is retiring this year. Lucy Kennedy, who kind of had a very fast, uh, short career, but very successful career. Um, she's retiring. Jolene Dorda, the, the Belgian sprinter, is also retiring. And, of course, the American Ruth Winder called time in her career today. Um, uh, today, this year even. Um, yeah, she she called time in her career at the, at the World Championships, same day as Anna van der Breggen. Um, and I kind of wonder how much the, the coronavirus pandemic has kind of played a, a bit of a factor in all of these big names suddenly deciding to to retire and giving riders a, a space to stop and kind of consider their career. Um, losing Anna van der Breggen from, from the peloton will be a, a huge loss, really. You know, we've seen her going up against particularly her um, fellow Dutch rider, Annemiek van Vluten, over the last couple of years. And they've really been going um, head-to-head at some of the, the biggest races of the year, Um it's been yeah, it's been fascinating to watch, and thankfully, uh, Van der Breggen decided that she, it wasn't going to be just a bit of a victory lap this year. She was going to go out with a a bit of a bang, and she won quite a lot this year. She started off with victory on the first day of her season at Omloop Het Nieuwsblad. She won her seventh Flesh Wallon. Um, she won the Vuelta Burgos. She won the Giro d'Italia for the fourth time. She finished on the podium in the time trial at the Olympics. Um, and, you know, yeah, she just had a fantastic year. Unfortunately, a bit of fatigue and a bit of illness towards the end of the year meant that we didn't really kind of get the huge flashbang finish that she might have wanted. But still, it was a, a fantastic way to, to end her career. And, yeah, we're really going to miss her from the peloton because, in my eyes, she was one of the most stylish riders on the bike. Like, she just, male or female, you know, she was smooth as silk on the bike and yeah it's she's going to be missed number 16 christopher blevins winning world championship gold now blevins is is sort of like a corinne rivera character been racing since he was in diapers as far as i can tell and has won just stacks upon stacks of national titles uh starting in bmx but also road and a mountain bike now he's been racing for the british-based trinity squad and raced multiple disciplines this year uh, i was racing at uh, tour de britain on the road um, jumped into cyclocross a little bit we may still see him at the worlds in arkansas but he is a mountain biker at heart and that is where he truly shines and managed to bag a bronze silver and gold at the world championships this year uh did the e-bike race that's where he got the bronze uh the team relay brought a silver but it was the short track where he brought home gold for team usa that race was exciting to watch it's almost like a cyclocross start where the start is vital uh and he played his cards well staying in the in the top five you know four or five or so gambling with moves that would go off the front and like do i need to mark this or somebody else going to bring it back uh played it perfectly got the into the last corner first sprinted with enough time to sit up and celebrate so that was that was a, f- a fun one to watch, and at uh, only 23 years old, his trajectory is continuing upwards. 
From one American to another, we're going to talk about Nielsen Paulus at the World Championships. One thing I forgot to say about Sepp, just to uh, clarify about uh, his Tour de France stage when he was, that was the 11th U.S. rider to win a Tour de France stage win. And Nielsen Paulus with his superb fifth place at the World Championships Elite Men's Road Race. Uh, really also kind of made some marks. It was like the uh, first time since 2011, again, Tyler Farah, who had a top 10 finish in the Elite Men's Road Race. And it equaled uh, Chan McRae's fifth in 1999 in terms of USA cycling, racing, and the Elite Men's Road Race. Uh, we haven't had a winner for a long time from Greg LeMond and or if you count uh, Mr. Lance Armstrong in 1992, 91, 92. Uh, and uh, what was interesting about uh, Palace was that, uh, you know, I just really um, underscored really how far he's developed in the last couple of years. He's been a big part of the EF. He came up to the Yumbo Visma with SEP, moved across the EF, and has really uh, flourished under that program. And uh, he's been showing off his skill set of the Tour de France. Last year, he had a couple of big breakaways. So a lot of exciting uh, road ahead of Palace in the next few years, and in general for USA, cycling on the men's side and women's side. Next up is uh, with, old, with an old codger who had a comeback with Jim. Yeah, so uh, talking of old codgers passing on from uh, from hoodie, uh, it's uh, <laughs> talking it's talking about Mark Cavendish, the uh, the thirty six year old sprinter who everyone thought was you know done and dusted. Grumpy old Mark was like you know just idling his way into easy retirement, full of sponsor money. But this year he came back from from nearly from what people thought was was the dead and. Uh, won four stages of the Tour de France at the same time, levelling up this uh, record of stage wins by Eddie Merckx, uh, 34 in total, which some thought he would never reach and that many thought, you know, wouldn't perhaps never be surpassed. And Cavendish just went on this amazing comeback through the season. So it started off, he won a few stages at the Tour of Turkey and everyone was like, nah, it's Turkey, you know, this kind of a small field, nobody really cares, doesn't mean much. And then stage four of the tour in Fougere, which is a, a town in France where Cavendish has won one of his tour stages before, he did it. He actually uh, he won, won one of the stages in you know the biggest race in the world. And then for the next uh, two and a half weeks, it just kept on going and uh, he accumulated four in total, which took him level with Merckx. And then it set the scene for for the final stage, the the you know the iconic Champs Elysees sprint, and Cavendish was poised to make it 35 and to um, you know surpass the record and you know really make this huge state statement in the history books. And the only man who was going to get in his way was Wout van Aert, and Wout did it and uh, broke a few uh, a few hearts over in the Isle of Man. But. Uh, Cavendish has got a contract for Quick Step next season for 2022, and the big question now is: Does he get chosen for the Tour de France again? So that's something to watch for next year. Number 19 is big name and no name coming together in a most unusual way. Yeah, moving on to the last few now in our in our list, um, and the women's road program at the Olympic Games provided us with two very dramatic days of racing, kind of went into it expecting that maybe 
Van Vleuten would uh, mop it all up. She uh, spent most of the summer training specifically for the Olympic Games. She'd stopped. Uh, she hadn't done the Giro. She left. Uh, she yeah left the La Course as well off the calendar. She'd just done um, a couple of races at the the national championship, but really her full focus was on the Olympic Games. But on the uh, opening day of the the road racing action, a, a certain Austrian Anna Kiesenhofer kind of came in to to spoil the party. I think one of the most interesting factors in this was that Kiesenhofer decided to go on the attack because she hates riding in a peloton. So she was just like, well, if I'm going to finish well, I'm going to have to go off the front and just avoid being in a peloton. So she attacked pretty much from the gun. Um, and yeah, nobody at that stage thought she was going to win, but as you know, the finish line came closer and closer, the gap to the front really didn't look like it was coming down. Um, you know, there was a bit of confusion over race radio uh, without, sorry, there was no race radio. So there was a bit of confusion over um, how many riders were, were out front. Um, some teams seemed to know. Some teams didn't seem to know. Perhaps, again, this was a similar issue to the Belgians at the the Road Worlds. Um, kind of too many cooks. There were far too many leaders. And, you know, they they left Ellen van Dijk behind, which um, was a – she I think she was sorely missed in this kind of lineup of four because they had too many leaders in this race and they really needed a van Dijk to kind of bring it all together. Um, so we were kind of left with this sort of dramatic finale where – Kiesenhofer had won, then Van Vluten crossed the line thinking she'd won, then realising obviously moments later that she hadn't won. Um, there was a lot of drama around there and the way that Van Vluten dealt with it, but um, I think that was more because her congratulations to Kiesenhofer wasn't shown on the television. She congratulated her several times and she was quite magnanimous, really. you know, She was obviously disappointed and a little bit embarrassed for celebrating a second place like that, but she came back a few days later and absolutely smashed it in the time trial. She was almost a minute ahead of Marla Rusa, um, who has been kind of one of these star performers this year. And then Anna van der Breggen was in in third place. Um, it was a nice kind of book ending for, for Van Bluten. You know, she'd had this kind of crash at the Rio Olympics. Um, the Rio Olympics was more for, for Van Bluten was more than just that crash. Obviously, it um she came close to winning the gold and crashed out. But those Olympics were for her a sign that she was a strong climber, that she could contend with the best on climbs. And it kind of sparked the Van Vluten that we've now seen in the last five years, you know, just winning all these big races and being able to win an Olympic gold was kind of just like a nice little book ending to that that chapter in her career, um, which is still going strong. She's closing in on 40 now, but she doesn't show any signs of slowing down. So, um, yeah, you know, maybe Cavendish can keep going for another few years. Who knows? Um, it, but, yeah, and it was just a dramatic two days of racing. And it was phenomenal. So moving on now, we've got Ben with number 20. Number 20, speaking of things coming to an end and things slowing down, the Super Tuck was banned in this year. It seems like it was years ago, but that was in fact this year. And in perfect UCI form, the 
band started on what day? April 1st, April Fools. It, when it was announced, it was like, is this, are they pranking us? Is this a real thing? No, it's a real thing. April 1st was the, the end uh, of the Super Tuck. The Super Tuck, of course, is when writers would get as low as possible to go as fast as possible, take their butt off their saddle and sit down on the top tube, uh, thereby reducing their aerodynamic profile and going faster. The UCI said, uh, maintained, this is a, a danger to riders and those around them. Uh, so that position along with the praying mantis position where riders would take their hands off the handlebars and, and rest their forearms on the tops of the handlebars to like mimic a time trial like position. Both of those were, were banned. Um, I don't know if it dr drastically changed racing because everyone was in the same boat. Um, but it certainly made for some some fun discussion and, and for some fun look back videos at, uh, you know, Chris Froome, for instance, not only sitting on the top tube, but pedaling while sitting on the top tube was one, one of my favorites of like a, a monkey on a, a little circus bike sort of um, look to it. So rest in peace, Super Tuck. We hardly knew ye. I'm going to be bold here and say that I don't miss the Super Tuck. I mean, it was nice to watch, but um, I don't think losing it has changed the racing. We obviously saw a few riders, uh, notably Richard Carapaz, get disqualified for utilizing it early on. But I don't think we've lost anything in racing by not having it. Um, and while it might not be um, overly unsafe for the pros, you know, they're well-skilled riders. You know, a lot of people see what the pros do in the races and try and emulate that. And they'll be doing it on open roads with cars and other things going around them. And so I think it was a good idea to remove it, um, to prevent particularly young kids trying to have a go at it and then just wiping out. Um, so it was fun to have. It was fun while it lasted. But <laughs> it's had its time. And I think that... It's like the racing is no worse for it. And I think that young kids, young riders are better off for not having it. Fair enough. And 2021 has been fun while it has lasted. And this podcast has been fun while it lasted. And there's one more to go. The, the final story of the year. Indeed. You know, it's a big story when your cousins in Texas send you an email about uh, something that is uh, happening in the Tour de France. Uh, this is one of those kind of wacky stories. I mean, it had some very serious consequences, of course. Uh, a fan standing too close to the side of the road provoked a big crash, taking down Tony Martin and really almost the entire peloton. The further, there was two those two big nasty crashes in the opening stage of the tour really marked the race and to set off this kind of uh, media frenzy that happens sometimes when a story kind of breaks out beyond just cycling media and it kind of gets into the CNNs and the BBCs of the world and Everyone was knowing and was wondering what's going to happen to the Omi Opie lady. She went to uh, AWOL. Uh, they, they tracked her down. There's all these stories. She was going to be prosecuted, thrown into jail. The story finally played out. She did get uh, uh, summons to go to court. I think she got a 1,200-euro fine and uh, kind of a slap in the wrist. But it really brought uh, the larger question of safety into play. Uh, riders are always nervous about all this kind of growing uh, level of traffic furniture that's being placed in all the European roads and traffic circles and traffic islands and speed bumps, curbs, everything to slow down cars is not ideal for racing bikes at a high speed. And it opened the debate really of what can be done to make the Peloton safer and raise the question of 
what can the peloton do among themselves to race in a safer way the pressure is always there to be at the front be at the front in this particular case the fan did cause the crash but so many of these crashes are caused by that tension that's born within the peloton so it was one of those talking points that kind of carried on through the entire season what do you guys think I think that just underscores the double-edged nature of bike racing. What makes it so beautiful and captivating to watch is that it's not held in a stadium. It's held on open roads. And and that's why the Tour de France is more popular than track racing. Track racers are phenomenal athletes, but going around and around in ovals is different than flying down the Alps or you know bombing through towns at high speed. And, um, I, 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 I don't know what the solution is. I don't think anyone has a good solution. Um, it's just just one of these dualities of of our sport that's that's tough to contend with. Yeah, there's a, a fine balance with with road racing in protecting the riders, but allowing the fans to get up close and personal and be able to watch it go by. And ultimately, you're sort of relying on a bit of common sense. And the problem is with a race like the Tour de France, you get an awful lot of people who don't really go and watch bike racing kind of around the year. And so they're not really aware of how fast the riders are going and how quickly they can kind of come upon them. Um, And I think that was, that was the issue in this instance that, you know, she wanted to kind of show a sign to the telly, but she didn't really kind of think about how quickly the the riders were going to be coming along. And also just how narrow that little stretch of road was. I think the, one of the big issues during the opening few days of this year's Tour de France was the narrowness of the roads because of the area, you know, they're not, there's no big wide open highways. Um, and what I hope now is that perhaps the publicity around this story will reach a few people who wouldn't ordinarily go to a bike race and will have seen it and go, Oh, hang on a second. Right. I won't be that person. I'm not going to be the the person whose face is on the you know the front page of every sports website and every sports newspaper um yeah i don't want to be that guy well thank you panel for sounding off on the 21 stories and thank you listeners for following along with us as we relived the the best and the the sketchiest moments of the year i'd like to wish you all the happy holidays merry christmas happy new year and uh, we'll look forward to following the exciting and sometimes dangerous sport of cycling with you well into the next year and beyond. But for now, we will leave it there. And thank you for listening to the Villainous Podcast. <laughs>